It's an absolutely great question to ask on an Easter weekend like this. What if death is not the end? I mean, that's a big deal question because the Bible is filled with that kind of talk, right? It's not stuff that we would normally hear in the marketplace in our everyday lives in the 21st century, but the Bible's filled with this stuff about forever and eternal life and being raised from the dead. It's a primary part of Jesus' teaching. In John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus was standing at a grave with the sister of a person who just died. And he said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. And anyone who believes in me, even though they die, like your brother just did, yet will they live. In fact, if they live in and believe in me, they really never die at all. I mean, because there's eternal life. It was the teaching of Jesus. And, and so important to him was this concept that he asked the question following that statement as if it was just, you know, come on, this is an easy elementary answer. Do you believe this? But if we'll be honest and we'll step back from whatever we've been exposed to and, and been taught in our religious and spiritual lives and really look at that question, do you believe in the idea of of life after death? Do you believe in the idea of eternal life and Jesus being raised from the dead? You have to, you have to acknowledge that is a crazy concept. I mean, from our limited perspective, it's, it's really hard to imagine that. It's hard for us to see that as real. In fact, if we're really honest, we'd have to admit it's, it's almost like it sounds a little too good to be true, right? It's almost like it's, it's the stuff of wishful thinking, the, the foundation of fairy tales, because that is just a crazy, wild concept. And yet, if it's not true, then the Bible and all of Jesus' teaching, in fact, the whole of Christianity, is actually a worthless exercise. It means nothing if it's not true. And this isn't me talking. This is actually what the Bible itself says. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 14, and all the way to 20. If Christ has not been raised, I mean, if he's really not walked out of the tomb, our preaching, everything we say to you about truth, it's useless. And any faith you have is useless. So then jumping to verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, like we've been talking about, your faith is an exercise in futility because you're still lost and dead in your sins. Simply saying, the whole idea of Jesus' teaching and of Christianity is that all of us are flawed, all of us are failures, all of us have messed up, but, but our failures don't have to be final. We can be forgiven. That's what he came for, to live for us, to die for us, and then to be raised again to give us this new hope. And he says, but if he's not raised, then you're still in your sins. What a useless exercise to trust him. And it even goes further. It says, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. It's saying anyone who's died, having put their faith in the idea that Jesus is the resurrection and the life and they're going to live forever, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, it's a bunch of hogwash. They're just dust in the ground. And then the Bible goes further. If only in this life we have hope in Christ, if the only hope he gives us is a false sense of security in this life, but it's not true that there's life after death, we're to be pitied more than all men because we're living duped lives. This is what the Bible's saying. But then it makes this strong statement to the contrary. It says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's the proof that everyone in him can live forever, can be raised from the dead. Here's what the Bible's saying. If Jesus wasn't raised, this whole thing, it's a joke. But then it says, but trust me, 
You can count on it. He's been raised. There's no doubt about it. Now, this is a big deal because here's the important question. What if it's true? I mean, I know a lot of people don't believe it's true. A lot of people think think it's fiction. Some of you here are still kind of cynical on the idea and skeptical on the idea, and I get it because I came from the same place. But let's just set aside whether we believe it yet or not and just admit if it's true, it changes everything. If it's true, it changes everything about our worldview, about our choices, about our values, about what's worthy to invest our lives in now. I mean, if it's true, it would change everything. But the question, of course, is, you know, is it true? Well, I want you to know, though I used to think it was a far-fetched idea, the more I started opening my mind objectively to the honest facts of the matter, I started realizing that it's not as far-fetched an idea as I once thought. In fact, I've come to the conclusion that this is the only explanation. In fact, here's the truth that I want to share with you this weekend. Believing in Jesus, though in our world, people say that's craziness, that's simple-mindedness, that's ignorant, but, but I've come to the belief in this truth. Believing that Jesus rose from the dead is both reasonable and intelligent. In fact, I've come to believe that it's the only truly reasonable and intelligent conclusion. Anything else is the true fairy tale. And this is a big deal, because if he rose, it changes everything. And I just, I'll give you a couple of concepts that have helped me move there, and there are so many, but two of the biggest. The first one kind of centers on what we're dealing with here on Easter weekend, the empty tomb. I mean, everybody talks about the empty tomb. I mean, the tomb was empty. The tomb he was buried in was empty. I've visited it in Israel with many people here from Northridge. The empty tomb, that's Easter. Look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 6. It's... It's all about that issue. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay, the empty tomb. In the ancient world, you need to know, no one had any doubts whatsoever that the tomb was empty. Everyone knew he was put in dead. Uh, Romans don't mess up on killings. They put him in that tomb dead. They sealed it. There were Roman soldiers there. And then the tomb was empty. In the ancient world, everyone knew the tomb was empty. The question was, how did it get empty? And over the centuries, so many people have come up with wild and crazy ideas. I mean, you can blow a gasket reading what some people's ideas are on this, but there are really only two credible answers to how the tomb got empty. And both of these answers were seen even back in the day that the resurrection was supposed to have occurred. And those two credible ideas of how the tomb got empty, the only ones that really explain it possibly are, are first, he really did rise from the dead. He walked out and he was gone. Reason it was empty. And I, I know for human beings like us who, you know, don't experience supernatural things like that, we're not like divine, we, we can't get that done, that's kind of hard to stretch our imagination to. But it would explain the empty tomb. The only other credible answer to how the tomb got empty is that the disciples, his followers, stole his body and hid it or buried it somewhere else. And why would they have done that? Well, people say they would have stolen the body and hidden it because, you know, they believed in his teaching and they thought the world needed his teaching and they wanted to promote this religion forward. Of course, to, to do it, they would have had to realize he was less than he claimed. He was just a man like them. But hey, let's steal the body so we can make this great pretend drama that will change the world. But that's a credible answer. Either he rose or the disciples stole the body. As I looked down at these, I had to decide which one's most reasonable, which one's most intelligent, which one's most logical. 
Which one am I going to trust my life to? And as it came down to it, I couldn't, as hard as it is to imagine Jesus walking out of that tomb, I, I couldn't come to a place where my brain could accept the illogical conclusion that the disciples stole the body. And, and it's for a lot of reasons. The first one is, I've got a problem with the, with the motive. There's a motive problem here because they wouldn't have benefited at all from stealing that body. Oh, yeah, I get it that oh, Jesus would have still been there. They still would have been looked to. They still could have gone. I get that. But, but you see, the reason you tell lies is to better your life. I know no one here celebrating Easter at Northridge Church has ever lied to better their condition, but that is why people lie. I mean, they lie to make life better. And then you know what happens? When it doesn't make life better, you switch up stories because you're always looking for the thing that's going to get you ahead. Here's the problem with the disciples stealing the body and lying about it. It did not make life better. It made life a living hell for them. They were persecuted out of their hometown. In fact, their entire life they were persecuted, had to move from place to place. They lost family, they lost friends, they lost identity. In fact, they were persecuted, they were tortured, they were thrown in prison, and they were ultimately, almost all of them, killed for this story they were telling. And you're going to believe that it was a lie? That's very improbable. And it gets more improbable when you realize that the character of their lives and the character of their teaching doesn't match it. Because history records, not just the Bible, but history records that the followers of Christ here lived lives of unbelievable authenticity, compassion, generosity, unselfishness, and goodness in this world. And you're going to say that kind of character emanated from and stemmed from a lie? It doesn't really work. And you know what their teaching was? It was about morality and values and goodness and honesty and integrity. And their teaching was used to change the world. And teaching like that does not emanate from a lie. There's no power in that. It doesn't make sense. But it goes further because, see, if they're going to steal the body, they have to have an opportunity, right? I mean, they have to have an opportunity to commit the crime. And the truth is they had no opportunity. Oh, they were there. But the Roman Empire, the superpower nation of the day, had sealed the tomb. It was a, it was a law punishable by death to kind of break this law, to, to go in and do that. And at the time, the disciples had run away in fear for their lives. They had fled from Jesus. They were hiding from Jesus. They were denying Jesus because they were afraid for their lives. And it's kind of weird to think, but now they're going to go in and they're going to go against Rome all of a sudden for no reason at all. Kind of crazy. But Rome also put their military might at this tomb. Roman soldiers, the people who built the Roman Empire, the people whose lives were at stake on fulfilling their mission because Caesar would kill any soldier that didn't do their mission well. And so at stake for their lives, the best trained military force in the world was guarding the tomb. And to believe that the disciples stole the body is to believe that a couple of fishermen and IRS agents, you know, tax collectors and the like, went and overcame this military force and seized the body. No one knew. Let me paint a picture that will help you to understand how crazy this concept is. That would be like me and the Northridge pastoral staff taking down Navy SEALs. Yeah. Now I know looking at me you could believe it would be possible, but have you seen the Northridge staff? Seriously. It just not gonna it's unbelievable. It's laughable. And yet this is what it would take. And there's another huge problem with this idea. Have you ever seen the television shows that kind of center on 
stupid criminals. Have you ever seen that? Where like they're just so stupid. They're trying to commit a crime and they're going to get caught because they're so dumb. These guys would have to be stupid to build the story like they built the story. And as it turns out, they weren't so stupid. Their teaching changed the world. But to believe they stole the body, they would have had to have been nuts because here's what they did. This is crazy. They had women as the credible evidence of the tomb being empty. Women discovered the body gone. Women discovered the empty tomb. They're the ones this whole story is built on. Now, women, I want you to know, we live in the 21st century. We are for gender equality. Women are equal. Let's be honest. Women are better than men. Women, do you agree with that? I mean, seriously. So that's, that's what we know. But back then, by the way, I'm in trouble with my wife. I'm hoping that dug me out just a little bit. That'll be awesome. But back then, they didn't believe that about women. Do you realize a woman couldn't testify in court back then because they weren't seemed, seen as credible witnesses of anything? I mean, they were not credible witnesses. So the disciples were going to build a whole story propagating this lie about Jesus by having women discover it. There's no way they would have done that. They weren't that stupid. Do you know the only explanation for the way they told this story? There's only one explanation. It's how it actually happened. They told the truth, which matches the character of their lives, which matches the character of their teaching, and which matches everything that this story has always talked about. It's amazing. And there's one last thing for me that just tipped it, and that's the character of their lives. Because you see, the disciples went from being cowards running for their lives to being courageous and standing up to every authority structure and every problem in the world and ultimately dying for their faith. And to go from cowards to courageous, there had to be a transformative event, and it wasn't stealing a body and lying about it. It was realizing that they were in the presence of the divine, that this man who walked with them and died walked out of that tomb, like he said, and it forever changed them. Because you see, if Jesus rose, it changes everything, and it changed everything for them because he really rose. This is a big deal. And then it goes further, this idea. Two credible uh, conclusions. Jesus rose or the disciples stole the body. There's a problem with eyewitnesses back then. Eyewitnesses. There were hundreds and hundreds of witnesses that have throughout history said Jesus rose. They saw him. There are no credible witnesses to show them as wrong and to contradict that. Now, that's a big deal because we know how important witnesses are in court. We know. And in fact, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6. He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. And this is an important part. Most of whom are still living, though some have died. You can't say 500 people saw him alive while they're still living and not have someone say, we didn't see him alive, we didn't see him alive, if they didn't. In other words, the credible evidence of the eyewitnesses says... He was alive. He came back from the dead. And here's what's really interesting to me. Many of the people who witnessed him as alive after he died, before he died were his enemies, and after they saw him risen became stalwart defenders and promoters of what he taught and ultimately died for him. How does that happen unless they actually saw him alive and that changed them? One, one great example for me is brothers. I mean, he, Jesus had brothers. And it's, 
I grew up with three brothers, right? And I'm going to tell you right now, I mean, I had one younger, two older. The younger, younger brothers don't matter, but my two older brothers, right? That's a joke. Um, my two older brothers were, like, really good guys. I kind of call them Messiah 1, Messiah 2, right? I mean, they were, they were good guys. They weren't perfect, but they were good. I was, you know, the Satan of our family. And, and I really didn't like them when we were growing up. Because here's what my mom and dad would do. Why can't you be more like Michael? You know, I wanted to do arm gestures, finger gestures, and say all kinds of words. Why can't you be more like Cliff? Ah. Can you imagine growing up in Jesus' family as a sibling? This guy was perfect. He wasn't just good. He was Messiah. He was perfect. Can you imagine, Mary? Why can't you be more like Jesus? Oh, they didn't like him so much. And yet, his brothers, though skeptical while he was still alive, ultimately dedicated their lives to him, to teaching his truth, and to claiming that he was Lord. What would turn brothers around like that? You see, I still go, Michael, Cliff, nothing's turned me around about my brothers. What turned them around? I'm going to tell you there's only one explanation. He did what he said he was going to do. He came out of that tomb. They were eyewitnesses, and it transformed their life. They went from skeptics to believers because they saw him. And so many people today mindlessly say, no, this is revisionist history. There weren't eyewitnesses. No one believed that he rose back then. This is stuff that Christians have added over the years to just because they want it to be true. It's wishful thinking. It's fairy tale. But that's just not true to history. You see, there was a first century historian named Josephus, and this guy wasn't pro-Jesus. This guy was of a Jewish background, and he was true Roman. He became a Roman historian, lived in Rome. And he wrote about the times, and you need to know, he didn't write about it from 500 A.D. or anything. He wrote about it. He was born in 37 A.D., right at the time, right after Jesus died and rose again. And then during his lifetime, he wrote the history, and in his work called Antiquities, look at what he said. Listen closely. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. In other words, he was seemingly more than a man. For he was one who wrought surprising feats, miracles, and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. In other words, he won both sides. And he was the Christ, Messiah. This is not a Christian historian. This is a secular Roman historian. Then it says, when Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing amongst us, had condemned him to be crucified, those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him. They didn't stop loving him. And on the third day, this is a Roman historian, on the third day he appeared to them restored to life for the prophets of God and prophesied these and countless other marvelous things about him. And the tribe of the Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. Now, that's fascinating. I'm not saying that we should take one historian from the first century and go, you see, it's true. That's not what I'm saying. I don't believe a historian necessarily, but here's what it teaches us. This was not revisionist history. It's not a late adopted idea that there were witnesses and Jesus rose. This was going on at the time Jesus rose. All these eyewitnesses claiming that he rose, and no credible evidence has ever come up to contradict that. Here's the only way I can see it. In light of the number of witnesses, the absence of any credible dispute, there's only one reasonable conclusion about this whole issue. The tomb was empty because Jesus rose. 
What we're celebrating this weekend isn't a fairy tale. Do you know what the great fairy tale is? Do you want to know what the great fiction is? It's the assertion with no credible evidence whatsoever that Jesus didn't rise because all the evidence points reasonably and intellectually to one thing. What we celebrate East at Easter isn't a fairy tale. It's the real deal, which means this. Jesus rose from the dead, which means this. It changes everything. It changes everything. You see, Jesus is who he claimed to be. God. I mean, you don't say you're going to come back from the dead and then three days later come back from the dead unless you're different than we are. I can't even remember to get milk when my wife asked me to get it. I mean, seriously. He came back from the dead. Which means he's more than us. He's different than us. The reason we have a hard time believing about this raising from the dead stuff is because we know we couldn't do it. But he's not like us. He's God. And God, if he could speak the universe into existence, can bring life back into his body. In fact, this is what the Bible says in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. He was raised from the dead. Uh, and it declared, Romans 1, 4, he was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. And this is therefore what we call him. Because he was raised from the dead, this is what we call him. Jesus, Messiah, Savior, the Lord, our Lord, God. Jesus is who he claimed to be, God. You know what else it means? The fact that he rose from the dead changes everything. It means that Jesus, when he made a promise, was telling the truth. We live in a world where we've had all kinds of broken promises in our life, and we know how much that hurts some of us more deeply than others. But, but see, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead as he promised means every promise he ever made, no matter how fantastic, no matter how hard to believe, was true. One of the promises he made is, I'll be with you always. And I'm going to tell you, more days than not, I feel like God's far away, not close. I don't know about you. I feel like God's far away, not close. But you know what the resurrection proves? My feelings aren't right. Jesus is always there with me because his promises are true. Jesus promised us that in this world we'd have trouble. Now, that's one that we didn't really want promised, and it's not one we really need verified. Of course we're going to have trouble in this world, but you know what else he said? He says, you don't have to worry about that because I have overcome the world, and me, you can have peace. And because he walked out of that tomb, we know the trouble that death causes. He's, he's proven that his promises are true. And there are some fantastic, crazy promises. I, I want to read you one because this is out there. Look at John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. Now he's talking about heaven. He's talking about this mansion up there, right? In my Father's house are many rooms. He's basically saying, you think the White House is cool, right? You think Bill Gates has a house. In my father's house, there are many rooms. You think Downton Abbey's beautiful, right? Anyway, are you alive out there? I'm just not sure. Okay. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I'm going to my father's house. Ooh. Don't you want to get him out some aluminum foil, you know, put it on his ears and say, mothership's calling. I mean, it's like, I'm going to prepare a place for you at my father's house. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Now, I'm going to tell you, that really meets me at my wishful thinking place because I would love for that to be true. I would love for him to be preparing me a place because, man, if, if he can raise from the dead, he can be preparing a place for me, a cool place, and for you. 
But the key is, because he walked out of that tomb, this is not just another empty promise. This is the real deal. You see, Jesus rose again, and it changes everything. This promise, as crazy as it seems, is true. He's really preparing a place for us. He really is. Can you imagine what that place is like? Imagine your dream place. You don't think he can make that your view? Because he rose again, it changes everything. Do you know what it means? And this is where it really hits for me. It means we can have a new life. And I'm going to tell you, I know we put on, we do. I mean, we dress up nice and we look really nice and we put on the perception and image that we're doing okay. But all of us know who we really are. And all of us know that we've written too many chapters titled failure for the story to end well. I mean, the story of our life that we're writing is not good. Just like the Bible says, all of us have fallen short of what God made us to be. We've all sinned. We know it. And if Jesus didn't walk out of that tomb, guess what? That's who we are, and that's what we are, and that's all we got. No wonder so many people are so disillusioned and so filled with despair. But, but remember, believing that Jesus rose from the dead is not a fairy tale. It's reasonable and intelligent. And because he rose from the dead, it changes everything. It means we don't have to live the failed lives that we've created. We can actually experience a new life. Romans 6, 4, Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so that we too may live a new life. That's my great need. That's your great need. And it's the only way we can have hope because all of us know failure. But if this is true, failure's not final. And this is true. And it changes everything. Here's a story that proves it. Five years ago, if you'd have told me I'd be sitting here, you know, telling my story of, of salvation, I, I would have laughed right in your face, and I would have told you you were a crazy Christian. I didn't believe there was hope. I didn't believe in true love. Five years ago, I didn't even believe in myself. I heard people use the term atheist, and when I decided I knew what that meant, it just was kind of stuck in the back of my mind. Like, I think that's where I fit better than anything. It was more just, there's no such thing as God. Like, if God really cares about people, like all these people say he does, he wouldn't let children starve and cities burn down and he wouldn't let people get into situations where they where they hurt each other i just thought christians were meddlers and they took away the rights of people and they were just trying to create this new world order i, I really viewed christians as evil i became really combative like i'm not gonna let them get away with this this is a fairy tale this is crap like they cannot just come and fill people's heads with this fantasy i faced life feeling like Every day should be awesome, and it should be fun, but I did that with drinking and drugs and boyfriends, and if I died, I just, I was buried. That was, that was all I really believed. I met my best friend who happened to be a Christian through a past relationship. She was the first friend that really started to talk about Christianity in a different way to me. I remember she, had, she took the, her jacket off, and she had this shirt on with bright pink lettering it said jesus is my homeboy i was like is that isn't that blasphemous <laughs> can you really say that and she just lived it i mean that was about the closest i had seen to someone really just demonstrating a love for christ rather than just duty to him and man i just remember thinking like how am i ever going to be friends with her if, if we're so divided on these things i mean we had debates we had heated debates i really let her have it i was like that is 
the most crazy hogwash I've ever heard. Because I knew her personally, I felt like she really did have my best in mind, that she wanted to break through those hard things with me. And in that time, I met a really awesome guy, and we got close, but uh, probably a little too close because um, I got pregnant only a few months after we met. I decided um, I gotta get rid of this problem. I went to a clinic and heard any of the options I had. And that was where a lot started to change. There was this picture this woman handed me and it was just a dot, but she explained to me that that was a, a baby. I just started to wonder like how on earth that was gonna become a life. You know, this had to be something bigger than me. Up until then I had been so snarky to Christians, but I started to lean in a little more and wonder if maybe what they were saying was true. My best friend had approached me. She basically said, I, I understand you're really struggling for answers right now. She says, I just want to tell you, like, what if you just gave Christianity a try? She says, because I go to church and I pray and you'll never know until you know, but I can tell you there are answers. And she says, if you just gave it one month, you know, just come to church and then you can just say at least you tried. I realized she cares more about this faith than, than being a popular friend right now. That said a lot, because we had been through a lot. For some reason, it just felt like, if I could just go, maybe I'll hear something, or at least I can just be alone for a little bit and think I hid myself up in the balcony, and I actually owned a Bible from all my years of trying to disprove, and the worship team uh, performed Canons by Phil Wickham. There were certain words, I vividly you know, remember reading them on the screen for the first time and just thinking, wow, that's, that's what I feel. You know, having been an atheist and, and believing in science, to, to read the moon and the stars declare who you are, it took me away from that happenstance and it, it put me in the position that just like I was created and my baby was created, you know, th this whole world, this whole universe was created and they all proclaim what, what a power he is. And on a personal level, you know, it's, it says, I'm so unworthy, but still you love me. For me, this didn't make any sense, you know, he can redeem good people, you know, people who've made little mistakes and messed up and didn't say their these and thous or something like that. He doesn't redeem women who are pregnant out of wedlock, who have a path of emotional carnage behind them. And uh, this song was just reminding me, you know, even if you're unworthy, he loves you. You know, we're all unworthy. You know, that's the beauty about grace. It's, it's a gift. You, you don't get to pick and choose who gets it. You know, you just accept it. And it was after that song and a really powerful message, I finally accepted Christ. Um, but I remember just sitting there because it wasn't so easy. Because I mean, it was almost like I felt bad for him to have to take on everything I lived. It's like I felt bad that Jesus <laughs> had to own, like me. And I just remember holding my belly and holding your breath and I just said are you sure that you want to save this one are you sure I mean I called him names I laughed behind his back I mocked him in public and I realized I'm no different than all those people that were right in front of him you know as he bled and if he went for them you know he, he went for me too you know it's it's a struggle to believe every single day that um, Jesus really did die for me and um, when someone challenges what I believe now, I, I remember being that person. I remember taking any opportunity I had to just stick it to the Christian. But now, I mean, my faith is so big. It's, it's like, I know where you've been. I, I know that feeling. And I, I promise if you give me just a few minutes, I'll talk about it with you. I try to just get them one step closer, one question closer. As much as I know about what it's done for me, 
it's worth a shot to try to get them to come over to. When Jesus walked out of that tomb, it changed everything. It can change you. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, they become a new creation. The old, the junk, the junk that's defined us for so long is gone. The new has come. I mean, I, I don't have to be convinced, and I bet you don't either, that, that we've blown it that what the Bible says is true about us. We've all sinned, we've fallen short of what God created us to be. All of us have, every single one of us on equal turf there. But we don't have to stay there because though the wages of sin is death and our own destruction, Jesus died on the cross in our place. And when he burst open that tomb, it was to say, now it's time for you to have a new life. Why wouldn't you receive it? Why wouldn't you accept it? Just before we move into worship on this Easter weekend, I'm going to encourage you to bow with me in a word of prayer here in Plymouth and Northridge, Ann Arbor, Celine, Northridge, Brighton, Howell, Northridge On Demand. Just bow with me in a word of prayer. And I believe many of you are here who just have never let them in. Let them in. Take my words in this prayer and make them yours. Just say, Jesus, it's a fantastic story. And I believe it. And I need it. I've, I've messed up, I've failed, I've sinned, I've made choices that have made my life what it shouldn't be. But Jesus, your choice to die on the cross is my forgiveness, and I'm trusting you for it. And your coming back to life is my hope, my new life, and I'm receiving it. In Jesus' name, amen. The greatest thing you can ever do is take steps into that relationship, and we've put together information on next steps that you can take, and you don't owe us anything. It creates no obligation, but we want you to know how to build this relationship with God, so we want you to get that. In the programs we hand you in our live services, we have this connection card, and it's easy to rip out, and on the side where you fill out your name and address so we can get it to you, there's a rectangular bold box with two statements in it. The one statement... Today, when I prayed with you, I was doing it for the first time, receiving Jesus. This doesn't mean you've never prayed before. It doesn't mean you haven't ever been in a church or religion before. It just means this is the time that you really let him in to change your life. If you prayed with me, and I know it's hard to tell people what you do, but if you prayed with me, check that off. There are boxes at every exit. You can discreetly put that in there, and we'll do the rest. We'll send you this information. Some of you came in, and you said, you know, I've had a relationship with God, but... Man, I've let it slack. And I just prayed with you, Brad, because I want to renew that relationship and really experience God. That second box, check that off. We have information we'd like to send to you about how to re-strengthen your life as well. Put it in the box and we'll do the rest. And you know what happens when you realize Jesus rose and then you receive him and he changes you and your everything? It makes you want to shout it from the mountaintops. It makes you want to celebrate because he's changed everything. That's what we're going to do now. We're going to worship. Would you stand with us as we do?